Hello, I'm Jamie Mitchell and welcome to a special edition of the Armchair Fan Podcast. The 36th running of the UQ Great Court Race is upon us and we're delighted to welcome our longtime caller, Jerry Collins, to chat about the race that stops UQ. We're super lucky to have Jerry call our big race as well as host the UQ Blues Awards each year. He's a true icon of Australian sports broadcasting. Over a glittering 26-year career with the ABC, Jerry commentated at six Olympic Games, including calling 23 Aussie gold medal wins. He covered three Rugby World Cups, notably calling the 99 final when the Wallabies toppled France. And he also covered the Brisbane Broncos for two decades, dating back to their inception in 1988. No matter the sport, Jerry's calls were wonderfully atmospheric. He made you feel like you were there watching the action too. Some incredible sporting highlights from a wonderful career coming up. Here's Jerry Collins. Jerry, uh, it's wonderful to have you in. I've spent many years and hours listening to you on ABC Grandstand, so I appreciate you giving me some time. Thanks for coming in. Oh, thanks, Jamie. It's a real pleasure to be here. Um, yeah, you've, you've got an interesting uh, life with UQ, and it goes back a long way, and we're talking off air. It's essentially my, my entire life that you've been involved in some way at the university calling the Great Court Race or hosting the Blues, specifically around the Great Court Race. How did you get involved in that? When did that come about? To be perfectly honest, I don't recall how it came about, nor do I recall which came first because I've um, emceed the, the Blues Awards and and the Great Court Race, and I think going back to about 1989. Now, I only came to Brisbane in 1988, so it was pretty soon after I came to Brisbane. And um, um, I do recall that Kerry Johnson, the, the fantastic sprinter for Australia, used to work at the bank at Tawong where I banked, and, uh, and her partner was involved with the administration of UQ Sport. So whether it came through that, I, I don't quite recall. But um, one thing is, I'm pretty glad that it did. And it's been wonderful that I've been able to keep coming back after my retirement as well and, and still do uh, this wonderful event, the Great Court Race. Yeah, I guess it keeps the itch of uh, sports broadcasting going there in some yeah. way. You mentioned it is very unique. I mean, we're talking about racing around the sandstone, um, Great Court, um, treacherous bends, all sorts of stuff. What do you specifically like about the event? It's very competitive. <laughs> And it is so unusual. Uh, the distance, 636 yeah. metres, um, but incredible 90... 90 degree turn uh, outside the library and and then uh, of course from my point of view from a commentary point of view they disappear behind pillars <laughs> for right. and and so you've got to be ready to you know that there are times when they're going to disappear and it's possible that when they reappear that the order will be, will be different yeah. so you've got to be watching for that and um, it's a challenge and it's it's uh, but I I you know what I like most about it the tradition and and when we play the chariots of fire theme at the uh, at the beginning of it and you hear that music and you think of that fantastic history of the movie and the, and, and the great athletes involved in that and how that became you know a tradition that was at Cambridge University then becomes a tradition here and I think at Sydney University they do the same thing I believe so it's um, it's been I, I just love that tradition you've got to call some future Olympians along the way we you might not have known it at the time. Mitch Keeley won three great court races, 05 to 07, competed at Beijing uh, in 2008 in the 1500 metres. Caitlin Sargent-Jones also competed. Um, she won three events, 2011 to 2013. She went to Rio in the 4x400 relay. It was a unique situation in 1994 where the Brisbane Broncos, South Queensland Crushers, Queensland Reds and Brisbane Strikers all competed in a sprint challenge relay. Yeah. In these days, it just would not happen. But the, uh, the Broncos who won, so how's this for a lineup? Wendell Saylor, Chris McKenna, Steve Renoff, and Julian O'Neill, they all went on to play for at least the Maroons, some Australia. Do you recall that unique event where Brisbane's leading footy teams come and had a run? Yeah, I do very much. And one aspect about me coming to Brisbane was that coming at the at the end of 1987, because the Broncos were established at the beginning of 1988. So one of the first things I did was go to the launch of the Brisbane Broncos. And then um, I was given the job of calling the um, the NRL competition uh, from then uh, here in Brisbane. And uh, so I got to call the first ever Brisbane Broncos game with my expert commentator, Mark Murray, at that stage, who was a wonderful guy to work with and, and of course, had been a fabulous footballer for Australia and for Queensland. Um, 
and it was it was just um, to be able to do that and then to call right through until 2010 is again something that I'm really proud of just to, along with having this strong association with the great court race and it's it, it's fantastic those you know little traditions yeah so unique that they, they matter and, and I'll always remember that, that Broncos team and when, when you look at it they were pretty fast you know you're talking really fast well, um, young Wendell Sailor yeah that's right a young Wendell Sailor and um and uh, he went on, of course, to be such a, an incredible winger and, and had his time in rugby union as well. Uh, of course, he was so such a big man, yeah. Wendell Saylor, you know. We've got the uh, records in your hand here and we've been having a think in the office about perhaps the, the best finish. Um, you might be able to elaborate on some before my time, but certainly the 2018 race where Ben Gibson and Max White Oak essentially crashed over the finish line together. Was that the best finish, of course? Yes, yes it was. We had some close ones, and we also had some really big wins, you know, by 20, 30 metres at times. But um, I'll, I'll always remember that because I had no idea what had happened. I, I'm calling them coming to the line close together, and it was Max, I think, who really reached for the – there's no tape there, is there? Oh, yes, there, yeah, there is tape. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. And, um, but then all of a sudden they're, they're both on the ground. Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, well, I'm afraid it's a photo finish between these two, but I can't name who'd won. Yeah, we'll talk about the art of commentary a bit later, but I did have um, a question around what do you do in situations where it is so tight, you you don't quite know who wins, do you just go with your gut and just pick one and hope for the best, or do you try and pull out a little bit and just let the action do the talking? There's always been um, the opinion, I think, has reigned within the ABC that you go with a gut feeling. If you have a gut feeling, go with it, Um, but but be prepared for the fact that you might not get it right. And uh, and then again, I'm, and that's where listening to race callings, race callers can be uh, really helpful for, for, you know, sports broadcasters who are doing other sports because they are constantly hit with that situation where two horses hit the line almost together. And the way that they, the ones that I really admire are the ones who control it and control it beautifully and will cause, and then they might go for someone, but then they might say, um, this could be a dead heat. So that, that's your other option. Did you ever call horses or greyhounds in no, your no. long career? No. Tough one. Um, let's talk about the Blues, Jerry. So, again, long-term host for us um, and such a special figure of a really prestigious event at the university, the highest sporting honours that we have. You mentioned there that you love the history of the great court race. Is it the same for the Blues? Uh, it dates back to 1912 and so many prestigious winners. Yeah, it, it does for sure. It was... Um, uh, again, on the night that they're presented, there's a whole feeling that this is something important and it means a lot to the individuals as well, as does winning the great court race. And it's a question that I often ask the winners because I generally interview them immediately after the race. And I'll say, so what does the great court race mean for you? And you would think, well, when it comes to the... Um, down to the nitty gritty, it's it's not a, a huge event. It's not a you know it's not a national championship. It's not Olympic. Uh, it's not uh, Olympic standard or, or or whatever. But it can be really important to the, the athletes themselves. It's and it's a prestigious thing to win that. You reconnected with Stephen Moore a few years ago. Yeah. So um, in the archives is a wonderful photo of Stephen Moore with hair, getting, <laughs> getting blue, good. and then he returned a few years back to be our guest speaker. Yeah. Um, do you have any sort of fond memories of students that you bumped into at these events who have gone on to have um, significant sporting careers? Uh, yeah, look, heaps of them, to be honest. Um, and just looking, going back to 89, uh, with Dave Nusifora won it. And in 2003, he was my main expert commentator for the Rugby World Cup yeah, wow. in Australia. And, and that was a magic time in our lives. And it's funny that four years later, then in 2007, I was in France for the Rugby World Cup there, and um, Australia was beaten by England at Marseille. And after the match, I've gone down to catch a tram, and there are people everywhere, and I could see that the doors were about to close. And so I've gone racing for it and suddenly found that they were packed 
backed in and I've just hit this bloke and thought, and so I've turned to apologise, probably you know, ready to apologise in French or whatever, and all of a sudden they're looking, it was Dave New Sephora. And then I thought, oh, Nussie, you'd be used to that, you know. <laughs> You've been in plenty of malls and rucks. So. That's fantastic. Um, maybe not the guy you want to nail walking <laughs> on a train as well. Uh, he was a terrific guy. Let's talk about a, a wonderfully rewarding broadcast career, Jerry. but uh, to get there, you had a bit of a stint as a primary teacher out in the middle of New South Wales. Um, how did you transition from teaching to broadcasting? Look, I always wanted to be a broadcaster from a very young age. I, I wanted to be a disc jockey. <laughs> it, it never came to fruition. But, uh, and, and I did, uh, I went into a radio station in Newcastle and the manager spoke to me and he was very good to me. And he said, look, he said, the problem with broadcasting is that is you're not going to make a fortune. He said, you probably should get an education first. And that was a really important thing that he said to me. And uh, so I went off and I got an education and I became a school teacher and I got my first teaching appointment, Byrock Public School. Not too many people know where that is, but it's the last little village before you get to Burke if you're traveling out from from um, Sydney or whatever. And uh, so I had eight kids in the first year, 14 kids in the second year. It was in the middle of nowhere. And uh, I can remember seeing these kangaroos hop out the gate when I got there and I thought, well, I've got my education but <laughs> and, and I had a wonderful time and, and uh, played rugby in Burke which was, you know, that sort of helped the whole process and, uh, and eventually I was to realise that if I show an interest and, and when I moved to a bigger town, to, to Dubbo I was able to do some part-time commentary and part-time journalism, part-time broadcasting and, um, and, and all of a sudden this dream started to um, look like it might come to fruition and uh, I managed to get a job when a job came up for the ABC in Canberra. Um, I was able to get that job in 1984. When the Raiders? Well the Raiders had come in just a few years beforehand and, and what had happened was they they didn't have a full-time broadcaster in Canberra. So they had uh, Tony Campbell, who used to do it on a part-time basis. He was actually a race caller as well. And uh, Tony and I became really good friends. And um, and so they wanted somebody he could call the rugby league. And so all of a sudden, uh, I became a huge Canberra Raiders fan because I, I loved it. You'd go, to, you'd go to training sessions, you'd get to know the players, um, even, you know, becoming good friends with quite a few of them. And it was, um, it, it was a magic atmosphere and, and I was loving what I was seeing but at this stage of course yeah. essentially rugby league and, and then cricket season came around and I'd hardly thought about that you know the fact that when, when you join the ABC you don't just do football uh, there are lots of other things that you have to do including so your bread and butter is for us in the northern states is rugby league in in winter and cricket in summer and um, I, I, I got to love those games so much. Where did your passions lie for sport or were you just an admirer of everything. Um, I was an Australian. I was male. <laughs> I think those things, um, they're not prerequisites. Of course, we've got heaps of wonderful female fans of, of sport, but um, I, it was just there. I, I mean, where did the desire to be a broadcaster come from? I don't know, but it was passionate, I can tell you, you know, and, and I was prepared to wait and I did wait. And once I got in there, I realised, yes, this is what I wanted to do. And um, and from then on, of course, all of a sudden, everything started to really take off. Who did you learn from in those early years? Did you have a mentor? Um, I assume it would have been a bit of a baptism of fire being thrown in to cover the Raiders and cricket. And then you find yourself in 86 uh, commentating on the Commonwealth Games in Edinburgh. But um, those formative years of being a broadcaster, how did you navigate those tricky waters? Well, I think if you think back, if I think back to growing up and, and listen to the radio a lot, and, and actually when I ended up out at Byrock in, in this one teacher's school, there was no television out there uh, and all we had was ABC radio. And so you listen to that as, as I had done because mum and dad used to often have the, the radio on ABC. So I'd grown up listening to some of the great broadcasters over the years, including Norman May, um, you know, Alan Marks with, with Rugby League, uh, Alan McGilvray with Cricket. And, and so it went on. And I would listen, and that's where I learnt a whole lot of stuff uh, originally. And then, of course, once I was working with some of these people, and I, and I went on to have the um, enormous honour of working a lot with Norman May. And just by observing him, 
I learned. So he was my mentor. He would never say, I think you should do this or I should do that. He, he didn't say that at all. But I learned from working with him, working closely with him and watching what was happening and how he how he did his job. The early years with the Raiders, um, as I understand it, you were calling from like card tables. Is that pretty much a condition of calling it back then? <laughs> a little bit different now? Or? Uh, no, not at the Raiders. We actually did have a broadcast box. It was a pretty tiny one. but uh, and, and that was at, in those days, it wasn't at the Canberra Stadium. It was at... Um, Queenbian, right? At Queenbian, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Seaford Oval at Queenbian. Um, but Paul Quinn was my expert commentator. And it's funny when you think of the world today that Paul used to see there and puff away in cigarettes. And, and we had a, a, our box wasn't much bigger than this little booth here. And, um, and I can remember one day when he was puffing away and something really exciting happened. And so I'm getting really excited and I'm up here and all of a sudden a whiff of his smoke came past my mouth and I breathed it in and suddenly I couldn't speak. And uh, so I'm sort of almost on the floor and I'm sort of indicating with my fingers, speak, please, Paul, because I can't. And it was, um, yes, yeah, so, so that was pretty tough times. But um, but in Dubbo, I, I had one year of calling Group 11 Rugby League out there and that was a card table on the sideline, yeah. Right. But, oh, sorry, can I tell you another yeah. interesting one? Um, I called a rugby league game between North Sydney and St. George, St. George in those days and uh, it was at the showground while the Royal Easter show was on. Wow. And we got there and, of course, everything was, uh, um, you know, there were no organised boxes or anything like that. So they, um, Telstra, whatever was Telstra then, um, Telecom or whatever, had to um, put all our lines in. Well, I got there. First job was to find the lines. When I found them, they were, there were cattle yards, uh, which they would use for, um, um, you know, for the various rodeo sort of events, and they'd bring cattle in there or whatever. But so we're we're sitting on top of them and watching from behind the dead bull line. So the, uh, I think St George were running towards us, which helped me because I knew more of their players than I did at North. And so North were running away, and you can see the numbers. But um, and anyway, the the game as as the game was getting close to a finish, you could hear this noise and whatever. I thought, what's going on? And all these cattle were moved in and placed in the pens underneath where we were broadcasting. And Mark Levy was my expert commentator. At the end of it, um, I crossed, I, I, so I've sort of run through who the scorers were and all that sort of stuff and full-time comments, Mark Levy. So Mark starts giving his his summary and I looked across at the, um, the uh, technical producer that we had there and I said, turn up, turn up the effects. <laughs> And he, so he turns up the effects and as Mark speaking, you're hearing <laughs> all these cows and steers underneath us, you know, making all this incredible noise. Yeah. I was going to ask about um, obscure venues you've called, terrible conditions that might take the cake just quietly, having cattle under there. Probably, yes, because when, when, yeah, because when I thought of that, yeah. that's kind of mind where it was just a disastrous place to call a grant? I, I know you had um, the Sheffield Shield final in 95 between Queensland and South uh, Australia. Yeah. The Gabba was getting redeveloped. Yeah, yeah, and our box had gone. What yeah. was the situation like there? You... Well, they they put a temporary box on top of the cricketers club, and so that's where we were. We we're on on the roof of the cricketers club, and it, it was a good position. And uh, but and, you know it was a bit rough and ready. But what an event! Yeah, what big few an days. extraordinary event. And and of course, so that's ninety five. So I'd been in in Queensland seven years or so. Enough time to soak up this. We're gotta win the Sheffield Shield. You know it must happen sometime. It must come. And uh, and that you know there'd been such a long drought. And and so when. Queensland batted so well in their first innings. It, after a while, it just became a celebration. So you had two or three days of um, people knowing what was going to happen and just waiting for the for, for the match to be completed so that the celebrations could start. But the celebrations started beforehand. And just recently, I was speaking to somebody who said, oh, I remember that day when, you know, we'd be yelling out, uh, Carl Rackerman, give us a wave. And, uh, and, and they'd carried on for a bit and then Carl would put his hand in the air and and they'd get a, a roaring cheer. Then they'd start on somebody else. You know, Andy Bickle give us a wave and whatever. And you wrote Andy Bickle's book as well. I did, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, and, and, and that was a highlight of my life, really, because uh, I got to be Andy Bickle. You know, I sit and, I'd sit and talk to him and, and um, make notes 
and and then of course I'd research all his uh, achievements and and whatever. But then when you write it, you, you're writing it in the first person. And so I was actually being Andy Bickle and it was, yeah, I, I'm so, I was such a, an admirer of him. What was your key takeaway from that process um, and, and just going into Andy's life? So he, he plays at a time where Australia is scattered with elite players. Yes. Had he come five, ten years later, he might have been the leader of the attack for, for decades. But um, is that the, the thing that stood out, perhaps his determination to uh, make it in in that era of, of great cricket? Absolutely. And his calmness and the respect that he was given by his teammates. Um, what he endured of having to be 12th man on so many occasions um, would try anybody's patience. You know, you'd think, uh, okay, if I'm going to play this game, I, you know, I play it, I, I get a game or I walk away. That's, that wasn't Andy's way. And Andy was determined and he would be determined to get back. And while he was doing that, he would help out all the players. So he would be, um, you know, I think the players realised that he was probably the best 12th man that they ever had. He would be prepared to do anything that they wanted and, and so forth because it was, it was all for the team because he was such a team man. But at the same time, you know, what an incredibly talented fast bowler he was. And, um, you know, his bowling in that Shield final was fabulous. But, of course, his, his bowling in a Boxing Day test match in Melbourne as well where he probably had his best success uh, at test level. And then he was part of a World Cup winning team as well where he starred in that. So, yeah, he was an outstanding cricketer, no doubt about it. 23 seasons covering the Broncos there from the start and the formative years where they turned into one of, if not the, the biggest football teams in, in the country. Reflecting now on that journey, um, you know, the rise of the Broncos dealing with Wayne Bennett, how did you enjoy calling the Broncos all those years? I loved it. Absolutely loved it because they were so big in Brisbane um, right from the very word go, you know, they, to, to feel the atmosphere, um, to, to know that it was associated with it. And, and when you think of the way it developed up until now even, the number of times with TV how the, the Broncos would be playing on a Friday night, they'd get prime time positions and whatever. And now that they're struggling with wins, um, you wonder where that, that might be reviewed a bit, but um, and, and that just simply reflected the incredible support that they got, and and it was a chance for Queenslanders to support their own um, instead of watching them go down south and you know playing with New South Wales clubs and so forth, and 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 also an opportunity for the players to come through a system here, and and that was important as well, and uh, and and of course as time went on, uh, they always remember that first game because they they took on the defending champions Manly and smashed them yeah. and you know and, you had, and of course they had Wally Lewis and Gene Miles and you know an, an incredible team uh, and but even so it then took a couple of years before they won a premiership but once they, once they did in 91 it, it just they kept on coming and, and Wayne Bennett is a fascinating man as everybody knows I was very fortunate because one thing about Wayne is he, he grew up in the country and he knew how important the ABC was to the country people. And so he was always very good to us and um, he, he was very good to me. And, and there were times when um, you'd think, oh, I'm probably not going to get much from Wayne, but he, you know, he, he would be there and he'd be fine. But there was one day when I did a preview interview and so it was just a training on the Thursday afternoon and... Um, and uh, any pre-season, uh, any pre-game interview is never going to be super exciting because you don't know what's going to happen and it hasn't happened yet. But um, anyway, I asked him a question and he gave me a three-word answer and I asked him another question and I, uh, he gave me a three-word answer or whatever and, and in the end I said, oh, okay, thanks, Wayne. And I turned the um, recorder off and he said, you didn't get much out of that, did you, Jerry? <laughs> and uh, obviously he just didn't feel like talking about it and that was it. Hey, as someone who's a New South Welshman, and I am too, um, I'm pretty fascinated by Queenslanders. They yes. just seem yeah. to love it more than... Um, people from other states. Can you put your finger on why people from Queensland are so into sport? It, it just seems to mean more to them. That's my takeaway. Yeah, it's a passion. It's an absolute passion. Um, there's a, a particular pride in being a Queenslander, um, and you see it in more than just sport. And, um, and I think that 
helps drive. But of course, with with rugby league in particular, they saw their Queensland team smashed by New South Wales teams coming up here, which had half the team Queenslanders. And and that's why that origin idea started and developed and um, and, and became the biggest thing in rugby league. You know, it's bigger than test matches. Yeah, you're right. Six Olympic Games, Jerry, um, from 88 in Seoul through to Beijing 2008 as well. What an incredible ride that would have been, but um, to be at so many games, to experience so many highlights, if you can put your finger on it, what is the magic of the Olympics? It's the world's best competing against each other. It's as simple as that. And when you realise who they are, what they've achieved already, and um, and that this is the the moment. And, and and when you think of the Olympic traditions as well, and going back to Athens, you know, to, to Greece, ancient Greece, um, the wreaths, for example, and it was wonderful at the Athens Olympic Games in 2004 when they brought back the wreaths. And, and so you got the, the, the athletes who won gold medals got the gold medal and they got this... Uh, wreath as well around their head and it was um, so it, it, it's a matter of uh, sports all about competition it's all about being the best um, and and as a result the competition is always extremely keen and I know that Australian championships or selection trials this year of course we've had the championships and, and the, they'll be the selection trials but for most of my time it was the uh, the championships were the selection trials the atmosphere and the pressure that the swimmers are under at those trials are extraordinary because for a start if, if it's Commonwealth Games you can have three swimmers if it's Olympic Games you can only have two so only two get to go and then when you get there only one can win the gold and the pressure and is enormous and, and, and that creates so much interest. So flipping that situation for a, a commentator, was that your career goal to make the Olympics? Was that where you wanted to be? Was that the, the high point that you could reach? No, I'd, I had no dream like that. Uh, you know, I had a dream of working for the ABC calling rugby league probably um, and, and yet um, I had played a lot of rugby union and um, in uh, when I uh, got the job with the ABC and I moved from Dubbo down to Canberra uh, and the Dubbo Rugby Club gave us a farewell and I was standing with some mates and one of them said, what's your ambition and your new job? And I thought, my ambition was to get the job <laughs> and I've got it. But um, uh, but then I, I thought, oh, no, um, I, I reckon um, uh, a Wallaby tour of the home nations, which this was, of course, prior to World Cups. And, um, and I thought, yeah, that'll never happen. But anyway, in 99, uh, they played Ireland in the early round. They played Wales in the quarterfinal. And, um, and then they played at Twickenham against uh, South Africa, not England. But, but then, of course, they won the World Cup by beating France back in Wales. And you were calling the World Cup final? Yes. What a major moment for you. The back for Eels. Eels juggles it but takes it. Back it goes to Gregan. Flick nicely back to Owen Finnegan. Across the 22 goes Finnegan. Up towards the line. If he keeps on going, he'll go all the way. He's over the line. Can he get it down? Try! Try to Finnegan. And Australia has won the World Cup. They know it now. Georgie Gregan jumps in the air. That is it. Australia well clear. 35-12 in favour of the Wallabies. And bring back Bill. It's happened. Bill's on his way back to Australia. Is it difficult to tread the line of being an objective caller but also a passionate Australian sports fan and not get too carried away with the moment? It is um, because it's your job, it's your profession, and I really believe that you have to be professional. So um, I always like to think that I was objective. Plenty of people have said to me that, um, oh, you know, you were biased towards the Broncos. Might have got excited and so forth when the Broncos scored and and – and I sort of believe that sometimes the bias is in the uh, eyes of the beholder or, or the listener rather than the person doing the call. But, yeah, of course there, there would have been biases. And, um, you know, I lo- as I said, I love the Raiders and, and I've still got a soft spot for them. I love the Broncos and will always have a soft spot for them. And I grew up in Newcastle, so I watched Newcastle representative teams playing before they went into the, the NRL. So... Uh, um, and, and at times your real feelings might come out, but but I, I really believe that I should be doing my best to make sure that you're being right down the centre. Do you have, a, I guess, the struggles of the Wallabies over recent times, do you have an appreciation that you 
got to experience and call a real golden era for the Wallabies around those, you know, 99, 2003 yes. World Cup as well. Um, a bit of a, yeah, an appreciation for that era? Absolutely. I, no doubt. And not only that, I had a golden era of swimming as well. You know, the, in in those two Olympics from, um, oh, well, it includes Sydney where it was five gold medals um, and then uh, seven in Athens and then six in Beijing. So that was a rush of gold medals because in my first, was, there was one gold medal. In my second, there was one gold medal. In my third, there were two gold medals. So all of a sudden there was that. So it was a golden era of swimming as well. But definitely it was a really golden era of rugby. Um, you know, to think that I got to um, call people like uh, John Eels and Timmy Horn and Jason Little and, and Michael Liner, brilliant, absolutely brilliant players, all of them. And and it was just and, – and, and you're calling them representing Queensland, you're calling them in test matches, and then when you go to a World Cup – there as a team and and we are close to the team because they're press conferences every day, all that sort of thing and, and going to um, training sessions and so forth, yeah. The 03 World Cup, it's home soil and the finals an epic. Yes. We lose to a Johnny Wilkinson field goal. Um, what are your reflections of that World Cup? It, it seemed to be um, just a huge one for the game in Australia, but also the world, just a, an adored World Cup. And, uh, you know, the contest between those two sides, Australia and England, was so fierce. What do you, what do you recall from that, that tournament? It was a wonderful time. Uh, as you said, a wonderful time for rugby in, in Australia, and Australia, Australian rugby benefited so much from it. You, you'd love for something like that to come along again and, and, and boost it. Um, and again, it was like having an Olympics in Sydney. The fact that you, you know, these players are playing a World Cup in front of their home crowds, and so therefore the semi-final when they defeated the All Blacks, and that was the key. You had to beat the All Blacks, and um, that was that night, that Saturday night in in Sydney was enormous, absolutely enormous. And I can remember walking away from that thinking, I've got another final, you know, this is, and and maybe Australia can do it, maybe Australia can win. And then the final itself, with the, the way it went, going into extra time and, um, you know, you had to, you look at Elton flatly, kept keeping Australia in it by kicking difficult goals. And and I found it interesting that uh, Huey Bowman, after he rode Winx's uh, last Group one, and, and she was retiring, and he was asked about being a part of history. And he said, "He said, well, I, I can remember, you know, growing up as a kid, and, and we'd listen and we'd watch the TV." And and, and he said, and, "And I think of Elton Flatley in that World Cup final. I thought, what what a what a great thing that is for Elton Flatley that Huey Bowman would think of him in that magic moment for him. Uh, and yeah, so you know, Elton's kicks of, uh, to keep Australia in it, and then of course the the Johnny Wilkinson uh, and." I had to say, you know, this Olympic Stadium, which is so meaningful to us, uh, is now uh, is now a part of England. That's a beautiful line. On those big moments, do you rehearse? Do you script? Do you preempt what you're going to say in a big moment? Uh, you know, Australia's going to win the World Cup. Do you have a line in mind? England's going to win the World Cup, or perhaps a swimming event? Do you did you rehearse much, or did you try and live? no? Uh, well. well uh, there is one big exception, and um, because Alan Marks again said to me, he said, "Don't rehearse," because and and if you go back over the years, you'll find some who have and and then muck it up because uh, in. In, in the uh, incredible situation that you're in, the excitement, the fever pitch and whatever, you can stumble over a word or something, whereas if, if you're just saying what comes into your head, that's fine. But in Sydney in 2000, um, in 1998, we had the World Championships in Australia in Perth and Ian Thorpe, at 16 years of age, won the uh, the World Championship. A year later, in 1999, we had the Pan Pacific Swimming Championships in Sydney, and Ian Thorpe won the 400 metres, and he was against, you know, huge international fields in both those and won them. And, uh, and of course, in 99, he broke the world record. And so the big thing that he didn't have at that stage was an Olympic gold. And it was going to be on the opening day, the opening night, 
And uh, so I thought, well, he's dominated the world. Maybe I should think about that. And I, I came up with something like, um, as he was swimming into the wall, um, a world champion at 16, world record holder at 17, and at 18 years of age, Ian Thorpe fulfills his destiny and wins gold for Australia. And it came out, <laughs> which, uh, you know, of which I was so proud. That's yeah. fantastic. Mm. Um, let's, oh, so many Olympic moments, I don't know where to start here. Let's go back to uh, 88 <laughs> in Seoul. Uh, perhaps the best call of your career, and I know it's a career highlight. Let's just go back and have a listen to Jerry calling, Duncan Armstrong calling the 200-metre freestyle gold medal, this audio courtesy of ABC. Beyondy turns first, Holmes is still there in second place, and Duncan Armstrong is third. Duncan Armstrong is coming with a big swim. He's catching up to Beyondy. Australia with a chance for a gold medal. It's Holmes from Sweden and Duncan Armstrong. Duncan Armstrong is hitting the lead. There are 15 metres to go. And Australia wins its first gold medal at the Olympic Games. Duncan Armstrong has done it. 33 to 1. Oh, give me the money. Jerry, how does that sit with you all these years later hearing that back? I still get a tingle down the spine and, and get emotional. Yeah, because um, it was my first Olympics. I did never thought that one day I might call an Australian winning a gold medal. I never thought, what might it be like calling an Australian winning a gold medal? I was totally unprepared for people slapping you on the back as if I'd won the gold medal. Uh, you know, all I'd done was call it and call what was happening in front of me. Um, and it was, it was when I look back on it, it was a beautiful feeling. It was a humbling feeling. Um, and, and what happened was they... It was the middle of the day back in Australia, and they told us we had to wrap up very quickly after after the race was over because they were going to the world today. And then Alan Marks came in my ears and said, stay where you are, stay where you are, because the world today is crossing to you, and you'll be their first interview. And um, they came on, and whoever the presenter was said to me, where did you learn to call such an exciting race? <laughs> and I, all I could say was, I don't know. <laughs> it just came out. I was just, you know, what was happening in front of me, I was, it was being reflected in, uh, in the call. When you were calling, were you standing, were you sitting? What was your style? I would have been sitting at the start, but um, and, and it would depend on what it was. A 1,500 metre race, you'd be sitting for a fair bit of it, but, but then as it gets exciting, you tend to stand up, yeah. But you need everybody doing it together. So sometimes I'd have two expert commentators, sometimes I'd have one, and, and you tend to do it together. Um, uh, but, yeah, you just get so excited at times that, you you know, you stand up and you jump around or whatever. Well, speaking of excited, I know Duncan's coach, Laurie Lawrence, was going just bananas in the stands. Uh, I've seen the video so many times. Were you aware of Laurie just going crazy? I, uh, I became aware of it, but everybody at home saw it much better than I did because it was on the other side of the pool from me. And I, th I thought, what's what's going on over there? And of course, knowing who, who Laurie was, um, it was um, <laughs> yeah, it, it was quite funny. But um, but I can also recall going down to the press conference and um, and Dawn Fraser. We're in this crowd, sort of walking in, and Dawn Fraser was there, and um, Michael Wendon, who had won the the two hundred one hundred double in Mexico. And then when we were going out. Um, the uh, the sports minister at the time, um, Laurie's gone up to him and he said, "Wasn't that great?" Uh, and um, and the sports minister saying, "Yeah, yeah, Laurie was wonderful. It was fantastic, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, Laurie was fantastic. Well, give us some money," <laughs> said Laurie. So he was taking making use of the opportunity, yeah, to, to you know get some money for for swimming. Some other sizable calls in your career: um, Atlanta '96. <laughs> 30 metres to go for Kieran Perkins for another gold medal. Kieran Perkins, a sensational swim. We have said that before, but there's been nothing more sensational than this. And an interesting battle for the silver between Kowalski and Smith. But it is all Kieran Perkins. He has killed them. The gold medal to Perkins. He's defended the title. 4 56.40. Well done, Kieran. Great battle for silver. Kowalski, Kowalski 
gets the silver. First gold and silver to Australia for the second Olympic Games in succession. Uh, a little bit of a UQ tale here involving Kieran Perkins. So uh, you were swimming here at the UQ Sport Aquatic Centre and Kieran also was training here as well. Um, did you have much to do with Kieran before the event? Well, in the end, a, a lot, yeah, because what happened was um, it was when they heated the UQ pool and, um, I, and I used to swim in summer and... Um, and run in winter. But all of a sudden there was an option of, of swimming as well, plus I had a few hassles with um, with my legs. And so I um, decided I could swim right through winter as well. And I, I came out and checked it out. And um, so I started and at, at the same time, um, they had been training, John Carew and, and Kieran Perkins at Dunlop Park, and they came into the uni. And so I, I was just doing my own thing. But because, you know, I already knew them because of um, being involved with swimming and, and so forth. And um, and and they were terrific to me, the, the two of them. And, and I, you know, after a game, uh, after their training session and, you know, I'd be having a shower or whatever and, and just have these chats to, to Kieran. And, and you saw the work that he did. You saw the incredible effort that goes into anybody who's preparing for an Olympic Games, uh, the pressures that are on them as well. And, um, and, and the other thing was you learned to appreciate the skill of, of Kieran Perkins. I, I can remember that I was, I was swimming in a lane and he just happened to be in the lane alongside me. And I became aware of this hand that had just gone out, uh, reaching out and it was sort of, he was about level pegging with me and his hand goes out. And uh, he pulled the, that arm through the water, and next thing I was seeing his feet. Uh, that was how quickly he's—you know—he was past me in a stroke, and um, not that that means anything because I, I wasn't the fastest in the world. But he was just um, a magic swimmer, and and his timing, and and the way he could dominate a final. You know, that 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 final in '96 the way that he attacked from the very beginning. And he had been really, really struggling, absolutely struggling at the, at the uh, trials. Uh, indeed, after he swam the 200 metres, uh, he had a disappointing time and the, the press all gathered around John Carew and, and, um, and I think the question was something like, so, so what do you think's wrong? And John said, I don't know. He said, oh, we, we've worked on a whole lot of things, but there's something amiss and we don't know what it is. And, and then he said, he looked at me because I just arrived at this press conference and he said, Jerry, you see him every morning. What do you think? All I could say was, John, if you don't know, there's no way that I would be able to help. You spent some time detailing that story in the run home to Kieran hitting the wall there, the struggles, the, the turmoil. Did you get emotionally invested in that, that race? Did, uh, did it hit you a little bit different that you'd been through it with Kieran, I guess, you know, watching him so closely? Yeah, yeah. I, um, I, I can remember as well, it was before the days of emails, you know, but they had... Um, they had anybody who was accredited, they had some sort of a, a network that you could be a part of that and you could send messages as in emails to them. And, and, I, and so I took advantage of it to send a message to Kieran just prior to the race um, to say, you know, on behalf of all our swimmers at the uni pool, um, you know, all the best. And, uh, and of course, you know, when he brought it home, you, you knew, you knew that it would be huge in Australia. But what I found when I got home was the number of people who, and, and, and it happened only recently, so, uh, a, a guy, I'm in a swim squad at Newcastle and we were chatting away the other day and this guy said, he said, I'll always remember that call. I was at such and such. And that's what people have said, because it was a Saturday morning here and, you know, they're, they're, their kids soccer or they were shopping or whatever and on their way and listening in the cars, you know. Does it make you a bit emotional hearing those stories that people recount hearing you um, beaming these magical moments in sport? Oh, it, it, it's, it's a nice warm feeling, yeah. But there, there have been emotional times and one of them was when Australia won that Rugby World Cup in 1999 and, I, and um, they... Um, they came on and said, you're going for another half an hour. And so I got to describe the Australians walking around with 
with the trophy. And what I remember was I just started to cry. The tears were rolling down my cheek. You know, it was uh, pretty incredible. Sydney 2000, um, an amazing game, some incredible stuff. You got to call the uh, infamous 4 by 100 freestyle relay gold, the famous smash them like guitars, Gary Hall Jr. comes United States and Australia, 25 minutes to go. It's Gary Hall Jr. and Ian Thorpe, the US and Australia. The US just in front, Thorpe finishing for Australia. US, Australia, US, Australia. Australia finishing well. Australia, Australia does it. Ian Thorpe and Australia have got the gold medal. Do you believe it? They have beaten the US. They've beaten the hot favourites. Yeah, recollections of that race, listening to it back, um, you were pretty steamed up as Australia hit the wall because it really was a shock. Well, it was such a tight race. It was such a really tough race. And 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 when um, Gary Hall Jr. dived in, you knew that he was he was a sprinter, uh, whereas Thorpey, I mean, he, his main event was the 400, but of course he was a fabulous swimmer, 100, 200, 400, as, as Kieran had been, you know. But... Um, um, all of a sudden, you thought, well, maybe maybe Australia can't do this. But the big thing that you also knew was that Thorpey would come home and it was a matter of how far he had to, had to make up. Yeah. And uh, when he turned for home and then he s- gradually hauled him in. But they went to the line. It was – I think I actually in the call said something like, the US, Australia, Australia, the US. And because um, you didn't know exactly who was – who had that little bit of an advantage and, and – and then when they hit the wall and Thorpey got his hand there before Gary Hall Jr. Uh, and, and that's when that whole stadium, the swimming pool, went berserk, the atmosphere. And listening to that back recently, um, it reminded me of just what an amazing atmosphere that was. Was it your favourite games? Uh, probably, yes. Um, uh, Athens was really good because Australia did very well and, and, and Beijing also. But the, the city, I think, that I loved the most and also the games because it was where Kieran Perkins won his first gold medal and that was Barcelona. And um, interestingly, we went on a nostalgic trip back out to Burke and to Byrock and just recently and, um, and the local paper in Burke got uh, onto the fact that I was there and, and they put a heading from Burke to Barcelona, and I thought, that's a good heading. Might make a good book. <laughs> any any plans to pen all these memoirs? Uh, well, um, that, that could happen, yeah. I, I have, I, of course, I did Andy Bickle's book, and, and I had another interesting thing that happened that um, that I've written a book, but whether it'll get published is not. Well, there's a lot to bite into. 2004 Olympics rolls around, uh, the race of the century, men's freestyle 200 metres. I remember I was uh, grade 11, I think, in high school, and um, that that really hit me hard. Ian Thorpe, Michael Phelps, uh, Peter Van and Hoogenbank, Grant Hackett was in it. Yeah. It was a seismic race that uh, really did stop the world. Yeah. Um, thoughts on calling one of the all-time great races in Olympic history? My story will start on the aeroplane going over to Athens, and I got a, a Time magazine or one of those magazines, and on the front it had a big heading, The Race of the Century. And I thought, it's 2004, there are 96 years to go. That's a big call. <laughs> and, you know, I said that to the other, uh, the other guys in the ABC team. But, it, and, and, and to me, the build-up was almost too much, uh, even calling it the race of the century, you know, when it was the first Olympics of the century and, and so forth. Um, I thought it was, was over the top, and at times we do go crazy. But... When they turned, or even with 75 metres to go, all of a sudden there were the big three, you know, um, Thorpey, Van and Hogan Band and, and Phelps, and then they went hammer and tongs down that final 50 metres. So that was fabulous. You were seeing an incredible race, but then Ian Thorpe touched in front and Australia won it. And, and of course, he, uh, he won the 200 as well. Yeah. You mentioned Thorpe, Phelps couple of iconic athletes over your career. I mean, who have you really enjoyed calling and watching? Who moved you as a commentator and as a sports fan? Well, I got to call Phelps eight gold medals in Beijing, which um, and, and um, I can remember I would have only been pretty young when um, when the seven gold medals 
target was was set. And um, to think that you would see somebody get eight was uh, amazing, but, you know, then to get to call them as well. Um, and, and, and I look back at those names we've been talking about, Kieran Perkins and... and um, Ian Thorpe, and the, the they were great swimmers. Ian Thorpe was an extraordinary swimmer. You know, his his long uh, arms, his uh, his incredible kick, uh, his ability to finish like he could, um, and um, and 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 then I look back at some of those great rugby players. Uh, you know, a Michael Liner, a Tim Horan, and I was calling a um, a game on radio of uh, Queensland was playing and there was a, a warm-up game and I can remember my co-commentator saying to me, um, see that guy playing in the number 10, he's going to be better than Liner. Now, Michael Liner was, I think, one of the best athletes that I've ever seen in my life because uh, not only in rugby. And um, and I thought that's a hell of a call. It was Tim Horan. <laughs> and, of course, he became the greatest inside centre possibly of all time. Yeah. What about some of the meccas that you got to commentate and also visit? Uh, you mentioned Twickenham before yeah. um, and, and even just the significance of Athens for the Olympics. But anything stands out as a wonderful place to have the pl- privilege of calling from? Yeah. Um, as a... With a name like Jerry Collins, I've obviously got Irish ancestry, and um, and to to go to Ireland uh, to be there for a World Cup, and to go to Lansdowne Road, the the home of rugby in Dublin, was um, amazing. And just walking there, the, the whole feel of it, and also the day before. Um, I came across the statue of Molly Malone, and um, and I loved that song, Molly Malone. Anyway, in in the middle of the game, I can remember I suddenly could hear when there was a reasonably quiet spot, and I thought, what are they singing? And I realised they were singing Molly Malone, and uh, and again, all of a sudden, you know, a big shiver down the spine, and and um, it just added to the whole atmosphere. And of course, Australia went on to win it and 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 win the World Cup. Yeah. Some questions to close, just about the art of commentary. Uh, I thought you, uh, and I described it in the intro, you you set uh, a wonderful atmosphere. You really felt like you were there. But um, I'm keen to see how you prepared all these years. Were you meticulous in your preparation? Did you have a lot of of notes when you were calling? How did you approach that? I didn't have a lot of notes because what I found was, and and people would say, uh, it must take a lot of work to prepare for, say, for Olympics or whatever. But if you think of it from from my point of view where I'm doing this job, I love it. I absolutely love it. And, And I'm interested in it. And so... It was a research was a constant job, and and whereas some people might get kicks out of you know watching what's happening on TV with say swimming events or whatever, that wasn't enough. I'd, uh, and of course the internet became a great tool because you're able to get uh, information from overseas. But I was always on to and and even right from my very beginning um, in international swimming there were world rankings, and uh, I would get them. But what made a difference when the internet came in was all of a sudden you could have them overnight, and uh, and, and and they they've been really important. So, in other words, I had a pretty good idea of most fields um, when you got to the Olympics, and especially when you got to the finals and everything. But certainly, notes. And one thing I picked up from Norman May was um, he was extraordinary. When they people could, you know, the directors might say to him, "Give us a minute, Norman," and he wouldn't have look at a watch. He he would give you exactly a minute. It was almost a, an innate ability that he had. But he would only write down a few notes and, uh, and from those notes would be three minutes or two minutes or whatever was required. How about a routine before you called a, an event? Uh, not so much the research side, but um, you know, did you have a little coping mechanism for nerves? Did you try and detach yourself from the sport or did you try and really absorb yourself into the environment that you're about to, to call from? Well, there was one thing that I realised after a while that I could use, and that was um, because when the Australian Swimming Championships were on, I'd be at the pool deck, and um, and I was available to any ABC station for a preview of you know of the finals coming up that night. So all the drive programs around Australia uh, happening between four and six, and. Um, 
and and so I would be I, I would get one call after another, or and eventually we they would switch lines to to the broadcast line that I would have there, and so I'd be interviewed in Melbourne, interviewed in Sydney, interviewed in Perth, Adelaide, whatever, um, and and then come six o'clock we'd have PM, which was an hours program, and then the swimming would start at seven. Now that hour, the swimmers would be in the pool swimming up and down in their warm-ups. I found that because I'd, I'd had all this concentration in doing the interviews, all of a sudden I didn't have anything for an hour and it was the lead-up to when all the pressure was really on. I just used to sit back and relax and think, and if you watch a swimmer doing a warm-up and they just cruise through the water and they look relaxed, they look totally relaxed, it relaxed me. And and, and I then always used that. I'd love to be when the prior to the finals, I'd watch the warm-ups and I'd sit back and try to be relaxed as, as relaxed as they looked. <laughs> Your calling style um, was very constant, but when the high notes needed to happen and, and the Key moments in in sport, you really got into it with, with impact. Uh, how did you approach that style of um, building to a big crescendo? I guess for a moment, it, were you very mindful of that, trying not to go too over the top too early? Absolutely, yeah. Um, and and was told pretty early, you know, to be careful about that. But um, and, and you you sort of develop, I think you develop it, you make mistakes and I, I can listen to some of my calls and think, well, I could have given more information or, you know, maybe I should have said this or said that, but um, but it's it's nice to know that the, all those calls are there and, 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 you know, people will occasionally still listen to them as well. But um, it, it was, I, I don't know, it was just... Um, Knowing that um, that everything is happening and that you, in, in essence, I, I guess let's let's break it down, bring it back simply. I am describing what's happening in front of me, and I should be describing it in a way that reflects what's happening in front of me. So if what's happening in front of me is not really exciting, or it's going to be exciting, but it hasn't happened yet, well, you don't go up there. Uh, until it until it does happen, and and your voice has to have the the listener feeling like they're going with you. So you should be building to that crescendo, and um, and that's what commentary. That's the essence of good commentary. And I think there, you know, there are still commentators who get carried away with any given moment and and forget about the fact that hey, the most important point, the most important point of this game or of this race hasn't happened yet. So build up towards it. Yeah. Who do you love listening to now from a commentary point of view and, and over your career, who do you enjoy working with most? Uh, look, um, Tim Lane was an outstanding um, broadcaster and, uh, with whom I worked a lot. And indeed, at the Edinburgh Commonwealth Games, my first games, Tim did the track and field and I did the swimming. And um, after the swimming finished, a group of us went out and had a few drinks. And Tim said to me, he said, um, you know, it's pretty special to be able to call swimming or track and field at a games. And I said to him, Tim, I don't care if it never happens again. I had such a good time doing it that, um, and uh, I'm pretty glad that it did keep on happening because it was, it really is something very special. And, and so Tim was a really good caller. Um, and, and of course, Greg Miles as a race caller that, you know, and we became good mates, Greg and I, um, and he, you know, his timing was always really good. And Matt Hill, who's replaced him, is, is doing that. Ray Warren, an old professional, you know, he's and and you'll hear there, you, you'll hear Ray Warren um, use the cadence of his voice to reflect that moment. And he'll go very quiet, and then he'll build and build, and then he'll get high for when it's when it's there but not beforehand. And, and so, you know, um, I've learned a lot by listening to and watching Ray in action as well. Um, and, of course, um, Quentin Hull here in Brisbane is a, an outstanding broadcaster. Yeah, absolutely. You retired from the ABC in 2010. Was it difficult to kick commentary and stop that part of your life? In, in lots of ways, I probably would have loved to have been able to just do commentary, but you can't do that when you work for an organisation like the ABC. And, um, and a lot of the other things, you know, can get to you and, and you know, changes in life and so forth as well. So um, when it happened, I was ready to go. And, and I look back now and people have said to me, I oh, could, could have done a few more years and possibly I could have. 
but um, it wasn't to be. And, and I'm, I'm more than happy with uh, the life that I've led with my broadcasting career, but most importantly, what that broadcasting career has done for me. Uh, I'm one of the luckiest people in the world because I had those experiences. And, and how keen a sports watcher are you now in retirement? Not a big one. Yeah? Yeah. I don't, see, I don't watch it so much. I, I don't... Um, I don't have the uh, the need anymore, I suppose, and, and that was a part of the fact that you were watching it. But but of course, I, I've just come to Brisbane and watched eight games of football on one weekend at the Magic Round. Uh, so the, yeah, this, it's still there. This the um, the interest for sure. Well, I know for myself and so many sport lovers, um, we garnered immense enjoyment from your call so um, congratulations on a wonderful career and thank you for being such a part of UQ Sport Events we really love having you around for the great core race in the Blues and long may that continue thanks for coming in Jerry I love my association good on you Jamie thank you thank you Such a terrific chat with Jerry Collins. A real pleasure to relive some of those iconic moments in Australian sport. Wonderful to have Jerry back calling the 2021 Great Court Race and be sure to relive all the best bits from this year's event on our Instagram and Facebook channels. The handle is at UQ Sport. That's it for the show. Back with more great guests on the Armchair Fan Podcast. Armchair Fan.